Welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, helping you invest well, understand money and achieve the best tax outcomes. Your hosts today are Andrew Sykes, Chris Oates and Young Han. Hey everybody and welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast. I'm your host today, Andrew, and I'm joined today by Young. Hi everyone. And by Chris. Hello everyone. We also have in the studio with us today Casey Fox, family lawyer at Farage, Asini and Dunn. And we're going to start talking today a little bit about some family law myths, some, um, how to protect your wealth during family law and how to look after yourself. So welcome, Casey. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm a director of Farage, Asini Dunn. We do family law, wills and estates. Uh, and various other bits and pieces. But for me, I'm family law. I've done family law my whole career, about 16 years now. Wow, obviously challenging and interesting. Yeah, it's uh, less scary than people think it is, uh, but certainly um, not somewhere that people want to desperately go to. No one's uh, really keen lining up to go to see a family lawyer, but sometimes you have to. Yeah, well, it would probably be worse if we didn't have family lawyers. Well, yeah, there's a bit of a mess sometimes when people don't. <laughs> to help sort it out. So we're going to have a bit of a talk about um, and ask you some questions on it. Um, protection. We often talk about protection. Is protection the best remedy when it comes to family law? And what, what, sort of, what does that mean? What are the strategies? Yeah, it really is. Um, and so often when we see clients, it's at the end of the relationship. And it's about then trying to sort out what happens with assets, um, maintenance and ongoing issues like that. Um, But what's much easier is if you see a lawyer at the start of your relationship and come up with a plan for if you happen to separate in the future, what's going to happen. Because if you have that plan set out right at the start of your relationship, then you don't have threats of things like court hanging over your head and you can set out a plan right at the very beginning when you're still very much in love and having a a good amicable relationship with your partner. And it's like an insurance policy. You put it in your bottom drawer, you hope you never have to need it, but it's there just in case the house burns down. Yeah, we're very familiar with that in business. When people agree to go into a business together and the, the tears of joy are streaming down their face at the thought of this new business, we say, okay, now go and write a contract while you're friends. Exactly. So in case you're not friends, and quite often when a dispute arises, we refer back to those shareholder agreements, the things we agreed when we're all still friends. And at the start where you you say or hear prenups, so why would why do you recommend them to people? Well, essentially, um, with uh, they're called binding financial agreements in Australia, and you can have them at various points in your relationship. So, from my point of view as a family lawyer, I'd say have it at the very start. So that means even before you move in together, before you're in a de facto relationship. Um, but you can actually have one if you've already been living together for say three years, and then you think, oh no, I now I need one. You can still do it then. You can do it before marriage and you can even do it after marriage. And so a lot of people think, oh, I'm already married, it's too late. It's not. You can still do one. It's just called a post-nup and it's under a different section of the Act. But it's really the same idea is that you're both sitting down with your lawyers, you're each having independent legal advice 
and coming up with a deal to say, if we separate, this is what will happen. I think based on that, it's a, it's a real truly that we love the idea of getting things in order before anything starts. But I guess it's easier for the second marriage or blended family, but for young couple just in love, thinking about future together, it's not that easy. Um, so out of all the clients that you dealt with, what are the kind of advice when they're thinking about it? Yeah, I think you're right. The, the most common clients we have who actually come to us asking about binding financial agreements are people who've been through a separation before and they really don't want to go through that again, particularly if they had to go through the court system. And so commonly, if you're having prenups, it's because one or both of them um, have had a previous breakdown of the relationship and they want to avoid the headache what comes later. That said, now and now with more and more young people earning really good income, having a lot of um, disposable income and various different assets, and particularly superannuation is something people want to protect. So I think with this generation, it is going to become more common for younger people with high wealth to start looking into this. And when does the time actually start? When do you actually see them as someone who's you know, have a right over someone else's asset and what's your advice on that? So it's a little bit um, of a lawyer answer, but it depends. Um, so, <laughs> of course, <laughs> everything does. Does depends. It depends on the facts, yeah. Um, but generally, um, for a de facto couple, um, the Family Law Act says once you've been living together for two years or more, um, one person can make a claim. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to be able to have 50% or anything like that, but it means they can make a claim. However, there are rules to get around the two-year requirement. And so, for example, if you're living together for, say, one year, but you bought a house together or living together for one year and had a child or significantly renovated your partner's property, then you might be able to convince the court that you should be able to apply um, prior to that two-year time limit. And there have also been cases where the court has looked at parties who aren't actually living together, so they have two... Um, separate addresses for tax and all their other purposes, but they spent significant time in each other's homes. And in those cases, even um, in some cases, the court has found they can be taken to have been living together. And so it's not good enough to say, oh, well, I've got my other address, but I really spend all my time at your place, that you're not protected, you're still at risk. Yeah, so I've got a uh, friend of mine and he's been um, seeing a lady for three years and they, he has two children from a former relationship. They uh, don't want to cohabit, but they do spend a lot of time together. So uh, she'll go to his place one weekend, he'll go the next. Would, would there be some sort of property rights accruing in that kind of relationship? Yeah, there could be. So the, the court looks at a whole range of circumstances. They look at the relationship itself, whether there's any commingling of finances, um, caring for each other's children is also relevant. Um, and so things can slowly creep in and become a de facto relationship over time and over various contributions, even if you're not specifically thinking in, with that mindset. And what about pets? Yeah, pets is um, another one that's becoming more and more common. Um, pets are basically treated like a couch for the for purposes of family law, <laughs> which um, is not very nice. And I have pets myself, so I certainly wouldn't treat them that way. But from the legal point of view, um, they're a piece of property. And so if you have a claim against someone else's property, then yes, that could potentially include their pets. 
And we've had cases where married couples have gone through the courts, they've finally agreed on everything, split the house, split the super, and then they need the judge to decide who keeps the dog. So what's in <laughs> and what's out? Everything's in. Everything's so in. So that's the easiest way to look at it. I mean, of course, there's obse- uh, exceptions to every rule. Um, but generally speaking, um, a lot of people will think, for example, oh, if I get an inheritance, that's mine, I get to keep that. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Essentially, if you end up before the courts, whether it's a de facto relationship or a marriage, the court is going to look at everything that's available. So that includes pets, inheritances, um, if you've got a compensation payment for an injury, uh, your superannuation, and this is one for the accountants, if you've got assets in a trust or company, the court can also look behind those entities. And so setting up corporate structures isn't a bulletproof way to protect yourself from a claim. Okay. So it's really hard to hide assets. Absolutely. And the court will try and get everything that and try. Does the court include things by default and then it's harder to exclude? They automatically say it's in. Is that right? Yeah, essentially you've got an obligation of full and frank disclosure in family law matters, which means you've got to disclose absolutely everything you've got, whether that's your bank accounts and your sole name, um, your interest in a, a trust, um, your Bitcoin, whatever you've got, you've got an obligation to disclose it. Um, now, once the court has everything in front of it, that's when they can make decisions about who should keep what and what assets should fall on whose side of the ledger. But essentially, the general rule is everything's in. Yeah. Hey, do you ever get um, parents offering to swap kids for a pet? (laughs) 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 You take the kids, I'll have the dog. Please, don't take my dog. I've not had that one yet, but, you know, never say never. Yeah. So we talk about, so when... Say a relationship breaks up, when does it, uh, is the property split done? Is it at the date of the breakup or when does that happen? And also what, what factors do you actually consider when you actually say, well, you get the 60, you get the 40? Sure. So essentially um, when the relationship breaks up, you're either going to do uh, an agreement, so consent orders to split your property by agreement, or you might end up going to court. If you go to court, um, the date that the court looks at your assets is the date that you're before the court. And at the moment, if you filed an application tomorrow, you might not get a court date for a year. And so essentially, while you're in that court process, you're stuck and you're in a bit of limbo because if you buy any other assets, they can also be considered by the court in that period. Um, That's it. If you're reaching an agreement, if you separated tomorrow and you went to a lawyer and said, this is the deal I've reached, they can draw up the agreement straight away. So there's no waiting period to do a property settlement like there is with divorce. Divorce, you have to wait before uh, 12 months before you can apply for divorce. The property settlement, you can do immediately. And we usually say to our clients, do the property settlement first. That needs to be your focus. Worry about the divorce later. Ah, so you can do the you can do the property settlement straight. So you could split, and then the next day, agree on your property settlement. Child support as well. Yes, the custody. Yeah, so everything you could agree straight away. Um, the the slight delay would be then formalising it. For example, if you're doing consent orders, you've got to lodge them through the court. They're very busy, and so particularly lead up to Christmas and things like that. There's often a delay with getting the orders out. But essentially, if you can reach an agreement straight after separation, you can have it documented pretty quickly. Yeah. So what's your role in that 
that navigating that difficult time. So, and what people can do before they come and see you. So my role really depends on what the clients are after. You know, some people come to me at the point where they're already in court, they're having a fight and they feel like they need someone on their side. Um, Other people come to us before they've been separated and want some information about if they separate, what might happen and what can they do in the lead up to separation. Um, Other people, and I'd say the majority of people who come to us, they've probably recently separated, they don't want to go to court, they just want what they think is fair. And then it's figuring out if the other person thinks what they think is fair is the same thing. Yeah. So do most of um, the, the cases you work on, they, they actually don't go to court? Correct. And even the court's own um, records show that out of all the matters that start in court, only about 5% go all the way through the court system to a final hearing. So 95% of matters are settling by agreement at some stage. And the earlier you reach agreement, the less expensive it's going to be. Out of your experience, what was the shortest um, engagement and what was the longest engagement? Ah, oh, good question. Um, I, I'm not sure if I remember the engagement. I know the shortest marriage uh, where someone came to see us was after one week. They separated on the honeymoon. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> we actually we thought it, it was a um, typo in their, in their new client form and note they'd separated on the honeymoon. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's a big one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and other long periods is some people who delay doing their property settlement. So I had a married couple who had separated 10 years ago, didn't divorce, didn't do their property settlement, and then went through the court system. And that can get really messy because then you've got 10 years of post-separation spending and asset accumulation that you need to dig through. Yeah, new businesses, lotto wins, things like that. Uh, we hear cases where um, somebody's been divorced and then um, they're back in front of the court in three, four, five years' time. Uh, so is it final or or not? Uh, for the divorce itself, once you're divorced, you've got 12 months to apply to the court for a property settlement. And so beyond that 12 months, in theory, it's final. But if you haven't had a property settlement and you're divorced... Um, In some cases, someone can apply to the court for what's called out of time. So they're out of time to apply, but they're applying to the court saying, I'm out of time, but here are all the reasons why I'm out of time. And it would be essentially unfair for me not to be able to apply. So that might be a situation where you've got a couple where they did the divorce not knowing that this 12 months applied, and then one of them has all of the assets and the other person has none, for example. And how does that, um, the time frame, if it finds, we find out that somebody's been, I don't know, hiding a bank account, they went to a bank, opened something else and didn't include it in their disclosure, is there a time limit on how long you can go back for for that? So if you've got a final property settlement, whether by consent orders or court order, um, one of the grounds to reopen a settlement is non-disclosure. Um, and so you apply to the court to set aside the original agreement based on fraud, unconscionable conduct, one of these um, legal terms that basically looks at the circumstances in which you entered into the deal and having one party not have all the relevant information. So as you said, million dollars in a bank account, um, something significant that wasn't disclosed and would have had a material effect on the settlement. So how do you find that out? Oh, it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, Look, if, you, if you're going through the court process, uh, there are ways that we can get information independent of the other party. So, for example, we can issue subpoenas directly to banks and things like that. 
Um, generally, though, if you're doing um, a 79A application, which is the application to reopen a property settlement, uh, the times where you see that might be where, for example, the wife sees the husband driving a new Ferrari when he claimed he was broke. Yeah, you know? poor, poor one day, new Ferrari the next. <laughs> Correct. Where'd the money come from? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, we talk about myths. Uh, talk us through the, the actual split. 50-50, 80 20. Um, you know, we do get a lot of accountants, um, our clients come to us and say, I'm going to lose everything. How does that split actually work? Yeah, so there's certainly no um, presumption of a 50 50 split. The way that the court looks at um, a property settlement is basically the same for married and de facto couples now, but it's essentially a four stage process. So stage one, identify what exists. So that's all the assets, all the liabilities, all the superannuation. Next step is identify what contributions everyone has made to the assets, but also the relationship. So they can be financial contributions. Someone had a house at the beginning of the relationship. That's relevant. Someone received an inheritance during the relationship. That's relevant but also non-financial contributions such as um, staying at home, caring for the kids, um, being the main homemaker, um, doing renovations to property. These are all the things that the court will look at. And so they do an assessment based on contributions and say, all right, well, we think they're about equal or we think this person is slightly ahead of the other person because of, for example, they had this large amount of uh, property at the start of the relationship. So that's stage two. Stage three is then your future financial circumstances. So these are things like uh, your income and earning capacity, if you have care of children, any health issues, um, and anything that's going to impact your future. And so looking forward, how are each of you going to reestablish yourselves? And so in that circumstance, if one person has a much higher income than the other one, then the person with the lower income might receive an adjustment in their favour to take account of the fact that they're not going to be able to rebuild themselves as quickly. And similar with super is often with super, particularly if you have a wife who's taken years out of the work workforce to raise the kids, she'll have a much lower super balance. And so in those sort of cases, often the court will take some of the husband's super and split it across to the wife to make it a more even distribution between the parties. So that's what really resonated with me then. It seems like the courts are trying to make sure that both parties come out with an equal chance of a fresh start. That's right. And, it's, and the fourth step is essentially just that. It says, is this outcome just and equitable? So the fourth step is so the court can then review all of those steps and say, based on all of the above, what is a fair outcome for this couple? So just because you get married doesn't mean you're giving away 50% of your assets the next day. The typical um, situation we've seen in the past is that when you have a husband works and then the wife stays home, um, gave up career, looked after the kids and then run the house. And when they go through the divorce, they're like, okay, the wife will get keep the property. Um, and also a lot of cash, a big cut out of the cash savings for her because she's out of the workforce and it will be more difficult for her to go back to the workforce. Do you think that's kind of fair to say that's common? 
Um, I think it, it certainly does happen. It's not in all cases, but in those situations, particularly if you've got young kids who the wife is still caring for in the house, that's even though um, it's an asset, they also will look at the best interests of the children in that situation and keeping them in a stable home. And so it really depends. There could be a case where it's the husband who stayed home and cared for the children and therefore he's better placed to stay in the home. Um, but generally, if they're young kids, she's been out of the workforce for a while. Um, the court will see if it's possible financially for her to retain the home um, and may also look at things such as spousal maintenance, which is where you can have an order that the husband or the wife in either context has to pay the other an amount of weekly support. It's usually for a set period of time to help them retrain or get back into the workforce. Another myth is we talked about contribution, but what about penalising for the person who's cheated on the relationship? Yeah, no, the court doesn't take that into account at all. It's um, It used to be back in the 70s before they changed the Family Law Act, there was um, grounds for divorce um, and you could – you. Back in the day, you had to employ uh, private investigators and things like that to <laughs> to prove the infidelity. Um, when no fault divorce came into Australia in the seventies, that wiped all that out. So, um, even though it's a relevant consideration for the the people often in the split and can influence whether we're going to reach an agreement or not, it's not something the court will factor in. Yeah. So, regardless of fault, and, and that's interesting to know, uh, what do people need to do um, to prepare before coming to see you? Um, I think that um, the most important thing is don't delay going to see a lawyer. So, if you, I often have clients who don't actually know a lot of information about their finances and they think, oh, I won't go because I don't have any information. Well, we can still give you advice in the absence of information. We still need to gather that information, but we can at least give you advice of steps what to do in gathering that information. Basically, get the ball rolling. Yeah. And for a lot of people, they feel really guilty about coming to seek advice before separation, but that's actually a really good time to get that advice. Um, And just because you're seeing a lawyer doesn't mean you're going down the court path or even you're going down any path, you're definitely separating. You're just doing it so that you've got the information so that you can make decisions going forward. And one other myth that I've heard a couple of people say is they might have separated, haven't done the property settlement, but they've gone and bought a house with a new partner or brother or family, that they say that property's not counted because it's with a third party. Is that actually true? No. And so the court can look at properties, um, including the interests of third parties. So under the Family Law Act, the court has powers to make orders that are binding on third parties. And so there have been cases, for example, where a house is owned, say, by a wife and her mother, and the mother has to get joined to the proceedings um, because there are going to be orders binding the mother because she has an interest in the property as well. Mm. Mum would particularly appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a present for you, Mum. On myths, and another great one that I've heard is, or, or something we get said, is that the business is worth nothing and if there's any value, I'm just going to stop running the business. I'll stop working. How, how is that treated? Um, the thing with businesses is it's a tough topic because often people think, have one view about their own business or about their partner's business, that when we get an official valuation turns out to be wildly inaccurate. And so part of it is getting the right advice from people who can give business valuations as to what the business is worth. 
In terms of the whole running it into the ground argument, um, that's something the court can also look into and uh, effectively add back to the pool what you've wasted. So say you had a business worth a million dollars and then you ran it into the ground. What the court could do is say, right, you've de- we've found that you've deliberately or recklessly done that and therefore we're going to add back that million dollars to your side of the ledger, which means you're going to get less from the other assets. So they can add back. So if, if uh, one party goes and wildly spends cash, they can say, well, you've already taken part of your settlement. Correct. So you can't just throw it away or be nice. blow it up. Be <laughs> just nice. be nice, be nice. <laughs> general. <laughs> moral of the story. Yeah. So if we talk about getting the best outcomes, what, what are some strategies that both sides can use to get the best outcomes? The best outcome is usually um, for property and for kids and everything related to family law is if you can reach an agreement. Because if you reach an agreement... Both parties are more likely to be happy with it and stick to the agreement in the future. You go through the court system, you've got someone imposing their views on you about your family, and the courts are less able to be flexible with a settlement. So one of the options we talk to clients about is a process called collaborative law, and that's where the clients and their lawyers all sign a contract saying, we won't go to court about this. And the idea is that you have all of your meetings with everyone present in the room, all the legal advice is given by both lawyers in front of everyone. And so there's none of this, um, what you could horse trading of let's start higher and then negotiate down. It's a way to try and reach a settlement that is based on the same information and the same legal advice. And it can also come up with flexible outcomes. So for example, we had one where the wife wanted to retain the house, but her income for the last year had been um, unstable. And we would talk to a mortgage broker and they recommended waiting for a year before refinancing. And so as part of the collaborative law process, we reached an agreement and drafted documents that allowed for effectively a delayed settlement. So whatever preserves the greatest amount of assets for both of them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if you if you go to court, you're going to spend a lot of money on lawyers and other experts. Um, and that's why often we talk to clients about a cost-benefit analysis is what are you going to achieve by going to court and how much is it going to cost you to get there? Because if you're spending more than you're going to achieve, then you're much better off reaching a compromise. Yeah, and arguments are bad, but they're even worse when you're paying people hourly rates to sit and watch them, aren't they? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So thank you very much, Casey. That's been really, really good and really informative. Uh, That's all we've got time for today. This has been the RSM Talk Big podcast. Thank you for uh, listening to us. And a reminder, you can subscribe at your favourite podcast platform. Uh, My name's Andrew. Thank you, Young. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chris. Thank you. And thanks, Casey. Thanks a lot. Hello. Thank you. Bye. Talk big. Create, save and protect with RSM.